This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer, Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 94, recorded on January 21st, 2022. I'm your co-host, Tim Cripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital here in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here with my co-host, Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Brenda. Hi, Tim. Uh, Pleasure to be here. And we have a special guest with with us today from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, Uh, recently retired from there, Wayne Furman. Thank you for being here, Dr. Furman, and welcome. It's my honor to be here. Thank you very much for having me. So Dr. Furman, as I mentioned, was a member in the Department of Oncology at St. Jude until about a month ago or so, and a full professor of pediatrics at the University of Tennessee. But I was delighted to learn in preparing for this podcast that he actually received his medical degree at the Ohio State University and uh, was a pediatric resident here at at then it was called Columbus Children's Hospital, now Nationwide Children's Hospital, where he also was chief resident before going to St. Jude for his pediatric hematology oncology subspecialty training, where he stayed on as a faculty there and uh, has a really storied and long and, and successful career uh, focusing on neuroblastoma and hepatoblastoma, two uh, very difficult uh, childhood cancers. And he led the uh, investigational clinical research operations there as COG site PI and uh, phase one uh, PI for many, many years, playing important roles in developing numerous different drugs, many of which are commonly used today. I would say most notably irinotecan and uh, managing side effects of that and all the, the tremendous work that's gone into that over the years. Uh, today, we wanted to talk mainly about his most recent work involving the anti-GD2 antibody and uh, particularly the paper that he published in the Journal of Oncology uh, not too long ago about improving outcomes in children with high-risk neuroblastoma with chemoimmunotherapy, uh, a phase two trial. So Wayne, why don't you first tell us sort of how that trial, the concept of that trial came about or a little bit of the history of it? Sure. Um, Many of you know that Dr. Yu and her numerous COG colleagues highlighted a trial of a randomized trial using um, an anti-dicyalgangliosite, anti-GD2 that we all abbreviate for obvious reasons. Um, that, that was a randomized comparison of antibody versus um, isotretinoin alone in the post-consolidation setting. For, for treatment of neuroblastoma. And um, actually, honestly, the first time she presented at the children's oncology group meeting with those excellent results, we were completing a trial, a phase one trial, dose finding study in um, multiple recurrent patients with a um, same class antibody against the t- same target that that was designed to try to ameliorate some of the major side effects, which is pain. Uh, The pain is thought to be due to 
Uh, the GD2 target is on the peripheral nerves as well as the neuroblasts. And when the antibody binds, uh, complement is activated and it causes pain. So the main problem with this whole class of agents is the pain. And to give it, you basically start the kids on, um, you know, narcotic infusion and turn it up until they're comfortable. And, and the good part is that side effect goes away immediately, practically, as soon as the antibody's finished. So, but anyway, her results were published. And, and you know, I basically sidebarred her and said, okay, what do we do next? And, and the conversation said, you know, why not use it with chemotherapy? Um, and so we went about designing a trial because this antibody that we had, I don't know if it's a better antibody, but it's clearly better tolerated. And obviously that's my bias, but there is at least one paper showing that um, when we were giving the phase one trial at very high doses compared to what's used for denetuximab. Our pain team basically added up every drop of narcotic and all the pain scores that the kids were, you know, as they're monitored for, for pain when we're given it and showed very convincingly what we were seeing, what our clinical impression was is, is that we could give higher doses and it would be, you know, better tolerated. Both, you know, most of the kids can tolerate the HU1418K antibody, which is the antibody we use, um, over four hours a day compared to 10 on average for denetuximab. So, you know, we went from the phase one study, then designed a very small, uh, um, basically, um, proof of principle study where we could give chemo with the antibody um, to relapse kids. I think we only put 13 patients on it because our goal was to get it into newly diagnosed. So we had to convince ourselves that we could give the antibody and chemo to sick kids, newly diagnosed, and then we moved it right up front and basically said, if it's good at the end of therapy, why isn't it good everywhere throughout therapy? And that's basically the, the design of the study and not really a nutshell, but um, you know, a brief, um, brief discussion of that. So other uh, rationale for why it might cause less pain, my understanding is the pain is thought mainly to come from complement fixation on the nerve. Yeah, it's, it's caught, well, it's not the whole story because clearly the antibody, yes, Steve Gillies, I think is, was the main designer of this antibody and he identified the complement activation region that's the notation K to A note at a position 322, why the antibody is called that. Um, and he mutated to decrease complement activation. Um, and, you know, there's a nice um, study, again, in rats to, to show that it does do that. Um, but it's clear, the, that is clearly not the whole story because we still needed narcotics, just less of it, and they could give more more antibody at a shorter time period. The HU14 is also humanized because the denetuximab is, what I didn't mention, is chimeric. So a good, good piece of that is mouse. So there's significant infusion reactions. And, and that's basically the, the, um, the hope of the design of the antibody is it'd be better tolerated and, and you know, given in higher doses. So that's what that was about, yeah. And, and when the, the higher doses, if I understood some of um, the, the data, the, is the higher 
doses may be important because of higher peak exposure levels, there may be some connection to early response with those higher peak uh, peak levels um, of the end. So is that kind of what was driving you to kind of want to shorten the time with higher doses? Well, no. I mean, when we designed the study, again, I'm not a rat doctor or a mouse doctor, but I asked everybody I could find about what's the right dose. And the bottom line, you know, Alice Yu, Paul Sandel, Rupert Hendrick, and there are others, um, you know, what's the right dose? And everybody said, I have no idea, but probably more is better. And so, you know, empirically, the, the single, single drug phase one study, the tolerated dose was 60 milligrams per meter squared. So just we picked a dose of 40, um, you know, just to be sure we were going to give it in newly diagnosed patients. Um, we probably could give a little bit more, at least at our center, if this was going to go sort of nationwide, because there's clearly a learning curve to giving this antibody, um, this class of antibodies. Um, so, you know, um, I mean, good question. We don't know. Yes, the the PK, both in the COG study of Dr. Moody in relapse patients with denetuximab, um, as well as ours, suggests that the higher dose does, you know, correlate with a better response. But, you know, good question. Um, you know, what is the right dose is a, a, you know, $64 million question. And really what you highlight is this may not be a better antibody in the sense of, you know, more lethal, except that you can give it higher dose. Um, that may be the whole, this denetuximab is just not tolerated. The, the, you know, recommended dose is 17 and a half milligrams per meter square per day. And we gave 40 of, of HU1418. That's not directly correlated, but very close to, you know, um, with the changes in the antibody, it's a little bit different, but not much. I mean, at least two and a half times the dose we were given um, throughout therapy. And then you mentioned the timing, you know, trying to move it up earlier in the course. My understanding had always been the reason to use it late was to that immunotherapy might be more effective under minimal residual disease conditions as opposed to bulky disease. So uh, did, was there data to suggest it would work in bulky disease or you just thought you would try it? No, I mean, if you look at a number of adult trials, there was more and more data coming out that, you know, chemotherapy with various antibodies was in, in several cases, not only additive, but synergistic. Um, and there are a few mouse model experiments suggesting that with dinotuximab as well. Um, and, you know, when Dr. Yu and her colleagues designed the uh, New England Journal paper, you know, these antibodies work, as you know, by activating the immune system and they need the effector cells to be, to identify the cancer cells and kill them. And the theory was then, you know, if you give chemotherapy, you kill half your you know, uh, effector cells until they recover, so they won't work together. That's why they delayed it. Um, but again, more and more data was coming out, and and 
you know, that was another issue. What's the right time to start? You know, you start it immediately with the chemotherapy. Do you delay it a little bit? We thought, again, a lot of data, not neuroblastoma specific, but some chemotherapy actually um, works partly by activating the immune system, whether it's, you know, um, killing cancer cells and and having pieces of uh, cancer cells circulate to activate the immune system, whether it's causing killing of immune suppressor cells in the tumor microenvironment or excretion of certain cytokines. You know, more and more is coming out literally every day on that, uh, that front as far as that goes. But so we just elected to start the antibody on the second day of the chemotherapy course. Edwin, I noticed too that the chemotherapy backbone, um, and then there there was sort of the consolidation with with autologous transplant, um, was certainly and appropriately kind of standard dose because what you were trying to say is was it tolerated to to give the antibody with this chemotherapy? Um, do you think? It, it kind of in moving forward that there, because of some of that data that looks at chemotherapy and, and immune therapy concurrently dose modifies the chemotherapy to, to lower doses of the chemotherapy with optimizing kind of dosing of, of the antibody. Do you think that would be a potential thing to consider moving forward that this may be a way to reduce some of the cytotoxic intensity? I think that's a long way forward, and I would not suggest doing that in, in a relatively rare disease like neuroblastoma. I mean, you know, our our goal is a basically proof of principle. Does adding the antibody to, you know, what you point out is we use the um, last high-risk neuroblastoma protocol um, uh, induction therapy as the backbone, 0532, which was published I think in 2019 in JAMA by Dr. Park, um, we used that identical dose chemotherapy. What you're pointing out is that there's a lot of data in animal models as well as, as some adult cancers where, you know, a lower sort of metronomic dosing or other things is more, in, I don't know, um, um, immune stimulatory rather than, um, you know, a higher dose of, of the cyclodose, you know, and that was 400 per meter squared, which is obviously a big slug of, of cyclo. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think down the road, yes, but I think a lot of work needs to be done to really define that, especially in this patient population, which often presents, as you well know, with very large tumor burdens that need, you know, effective therapy immediately, basically. Um, so, you know, where the fine line is, is a good question. I, I think what this study points out is it needs a randomized comparison of chemoimmunotherapy versus standard chemotherapy, because again, this was a single institution study um, you know, it enrolled 64 patients, so it's not a trivial number of patients, but, um, you know, it, it needs, it needs uh, verified in a, you know, much larger uh, multi-institutional randomized trial um, for sure.
one interesting um, element um, during consolidation with the Busulf and Melvillan uh, transplant um, was in addition to the antibody therapy, uh, when you initially started the study, there was also an infusion where patients were able to, from their parents, receive um, natural killer cells, another cell of the immune system. Can you tell us a little bit about the rationale around that or your and how that came to be added? Um, again, um, from a lot of um, you know animal experiments, the major effector cell, uh, the cell that that you know, um, kills the cancer after the antibody binds is, is thought to be NK cells. There's a little bit of uh, effect with granulocytes and others, but the NK cells are thought to be the major effector cell. And, um, you know, when we designed the trial, um, an expert in NK cell, Dr. Wing Leung was there, and, and we began talking about consolidation, because again, in consolidation, you give a big slug of chemo, as everybody knows, and then you, you know, rescue them and you basically sit on your hands and wait for, you know, three, four weeks for the immune system to recover so you can go on to more therapy. And, you know, we knew the antibody does not, you know, suppress the immune system. It may not have, you know, a number of effect, the number of effector cells needed. So we thought, you know, he was an expert at doing this. He has, you know, papers in AML and others. So we thought, well, what the heck if, uh, you know, a parent is a suitable donor. Um, let's just um, add a course of antibody during recovery phase of consolidation. And in patients who had a suitable parent donor, um, to go ahead and add an infusion of NK cells. We had done that on our previous um, tolerability trial, um, which is published in Clinical Cancer Research where we gave a course of chemo, immunotherapy um, alone, and then the second course we gave with NK cell infusion, just to, again, uh, show that, you know, is there a side effect with NK cells? And we did not know, it was a small study, but we did not notice any additional toxicity to NK cells. So it really was designed as a tolerability. And so we, you know, gave a, a uh, cadre of patients, 25 milligrams per meter squared, and then 40 where we were given just to show that, yes, it could be done. Um, again, um, the study did not have, it wasn't designed at all to measure efficacy. So the only way to get at that would be, again, to design a study to ask that specific question. It might be statistically unfair, but were there any trends or hints as yeah, we, we looked, we were hoping, you're right, but no, they were not. Um, we could not discern any difference whatsoever. So uh, it was disappointing because, yes, um, um, but again, you're talking about, you know, a rare, relatively, I mean, not for pediatric oncologists, but for the, compared to our adult colleagues, it's a fairly rare patient group. And, you know, to get a lot of patients to do some of these nuanced studies, would be considerably challenging. I don't think we've had you actually describe the results of the study yet. So your title says improved outcomes. So can you tell us what the outcomes were and, and why you think they were improved or what's your history? Well, um, you know, the initial study we designed um, to look at the early response. So 
the CRG did a pilot study to 00532, um, and they looked at response after the first two courses of chemotherapy. And so we initially said, well, if this is going to work, we should see, you know, an early response after two courses improved. And if it's not, then it's not worth the effort. So uh, we designed the study to ask if we could improve by at least 20, 25% of, uh, you know, objective response rate, PR or greater after the first two courses. And, you know, we were quite frankly, flabbergasted by the responses. They were, you know, on the first cadre, double what the publication was for the pilot. And, you know, the pilot response um, of 40%, you know, PRs are better after the first two courses was uh, uh, mirrored in the JAMA report of Dr. Park of, I think it was 39%. And we, you know, our final result, um, we saw two thirds of patients have a PR, but um, when we saw those early responses, I mean, again, early responses, we hope um, uh, correlates with event-free survival, but, you know, I don't need to tell this audience if the early response doesn't, um, doesn't cause more cures, then who the heck cares, honestly? So once we got that early, for gratifying response, we amended the study for to accrue more to get a better estimate of outcome. And our three-year event-free survival was um, nearly, I think it was 73.7%, which compares to any of the high-risk studies in the 50s, 50% uh, range, um, even in, um, you know, and, and again, uh, that uh, outcome includes every patient. If you look through the nuances of the neuroblastoma papers, many of the outcomes don't start to randomization, which starts later. Um, and, you know, so the other thing that we did not see is nobody progressed during induction. I mean, nobody. Uh, zero out of 64 progressed during the first um, six courses of therapy. And again, that compares again to many larger studies, but somewhere between seven and fourteen percent of patients, you know, fail induction. So I think the event-free survival and no no failures during induction highlight that this is a very promising approach. Um, but again, also highlights that it needs verified in a larger multi-institutional setting. And and thank you for summarizing. You know, as you you said, Wayne, really promising results and and encouraging, and certainly, um, really does suggest that this approach is worth considering um, for further evaluation. Was there anything um, unexpected that that occurred during the study that? Um, you know, I think that the outcomes are what you hoped you would show is that it was well tolerated and that and that there's potential for for real benefit. Um, but any anything surprising that or things that you didn't expect that occurred? Uh, no, I mean, we stopped the um, I guess the only thing I might mention is is we stopped giving the additional course in consolidation because a patient or two had um, 
you know, severe, um, what is the latest lingo, SOS syndrome, they basically, um, you know, um, had multi-organ multi failure post-transplant, which again has been described as a side effect of myoblative chemotherapy alone. And, you know, we only saw, you know, one, pa one patient did expire of that, and we thought we, this was not the major problem with the study. We weren't going to take a chance. So we, you know, um, stopped that. We did all kinds of, as best we could, to discern if it was antibody, if it was related to NK cells, could not discern that, but thought that, you know, the best, we should just stop that. So I think it's the last 17, 18 patients did not get that um, you know, what we termed experimental, you know, therapy post-consolidation. That's really the only thing that's, you know, surprising. Um, the antibodies do have effects on your, um, you know, ability of your pu pupil to accommodate. And some, you know, but at St. Jude, we're, you know, fortunately we have ophthalmology on staff. They looked at all these kids. Some of them needed some sunglasses. Once the antibody was done, they usually recovered. But that's been described before, both, you know, with all the dimpuximab for sure. It, you know, wasn't unexpected as you asked that question. I think the only thing that was unexpected would be, you know, one or two kids that had that, um, you know, reaction post um, consolidation. Mm -hmm. and, and as you said, with an abundance of caution. You know, yeah. in, in a in a in a tolerability study, you know, it certainly makes sense. But as you said, it that has been described with autologous transplant in this patient population. So hard hard to know, but um, certainly an abundance of caution uh, to do so. Um, and Wayne, can you comment as well? Sort of the the post consolidation phase was very standard. Um, from what except for dose, except for dose, and that yes. was I wanted to ask if you could highlight if there were things that were different in that post consolidation phase. So we, we used identical doses of DMCSF, interleukin two, and isotretinoin as Dr. Yu's doing a journal paper report, and you know what now is standard of care in these kids. The only difference was we substituted denetuximab. Um, with HU1418K, um, and again, the dose of dentuximab is 17 and a half, and we gave 40 throughout. So that's what was different. What you do highlight, and I, I might just clarify, is during induction, um, we gave GMCSF post-chemotherapy, both for its ability to um, ameliorate febrile neutropenia, but also, as you are both aware, there's some report showing GM um, enhances ADCC, so we thought we would use that. And we also used low-dose IL-2, sub-Q, 1 million units per meter squared every other day for like six doses. Um, and, you know, Kids may have gotten a few extra admissions for febrile neutropenia with the IL-2 injection, but we saw no problem. Um, as you may um, be familiar, the IL-2 has been taken out because the European group um, had done a randomized study. And again, I think that's a $64 million question, too, is I think some IL-2 
carbon does enhance ADCC and NK cell, but what's the right dose? Again, um, you know, we didn't design this study to, to ask that question for sure. Um, you know, it does affect the, uh, I think it's the Treg cells from the PSYOP group that suggests that it enhances those, which would in suppress the immune system. And that's why currently it's been taken out of, of the COG. And, and I think um, Europeans are recommending it as well. So the newer cytokines may be something to think about, IL-15, IL-21 which appear to do the same thing to the NK cells, enhance them um, without some of the untoward effects um, as, as far as systemic toxicities, as well as their effects on, they don't seem to cause Treg um, growth, which, which could inhibit that. Sounds like there was a lot going on in this trial and uh, some variables here in terms of thinking about how to design uh, a randomized uh, follow-on trial, but the, the biggest one, though, still, I think, remains the difference in the antibody, and from what you said, it seems like that, that ability to high, give high dose is probably pretty important, so I'm wondering what's the commercialization potential of this antibody, and because it, we don't know if, 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 if we were to design the trial now in a big COG consortium, we'd probably use dinituximab, right? That's what's commercially available and, yeah. and being used, but we don't know you're going to get the same results with the doses that you can use with that. So is there a commercialization uh, pathway for uh, the, the, the uh, K322A antibody? Again, St. Jude has been um, basically given the, the rights to develop this antibody from the owner of the antibody, which is, um, I, it used to be called Merxalone. I don't honestly know, it's one of the uh, um, German companies, but, the hard part is we are looking for a commercial partner. You put your finger on the $64 million question. Um, you know, it may be just due to dose. And if we design a randomized trial identical to this and used in a Tuxamab at 17.5 and we use 40, it, it may be a negative trial only because, you know, you could only use um, less than, you know, well, half the dose, less than half the dose that we use. So be looking for a commercial partner that would then provide the trial and the, you know, um, ability to design a trial with the FDA to say, you know, if it's positive, it would lead to commercialization. As this audience knows, you know, there's probably at most 400 new high-risk patients a year in the U.S., um, that would benefit, potentially benefit from this approach. And that does not make a lot of money for big pharma at 400 patients a year. And so that's a real um, conundrum. When you also highlight some of the importance of, you know, some of the tough questions around bringing some of these new agents forward, especially when you're looking at, you know, comparing potentially less side effects with potentially gain and improvement in outcome in a very small patient population. Um, it, it, there are major challenges in the field. And so I, I recognize uh, the importance, but also I think you just summed up 
a, a lot of the challenges in the pediatric oncology drug development world. Uh, so appreciate yeah. appreciate that. We are coming up on uh, sort of our our final few minutes, and I wanted to ask. Um, you know, Dr. Wayne Furman, if you have any final key points you want to highlight, or if, if Dr. Tim Kripe has any final uh, comments or questions. Well I, well, I think the last question from Dr. Kripe is what I'd highlight is, you know, we need a commercial partner to come alongside and get this, you know, study designed. Um, and if there is such a one that's listening, you know, please call. My my last question is what's what's retirement hold in store for you? I've been honestly so busy I have no idea what normal retirement is quite yet. So um I have a bunch of grandkids that live in Nashville and we're gonna be moving to their locale. Um I thought for a good thing there are some days I wonder maybe I should move farther away, not closer. <laughs> um we can edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's terrific. <laughs> well, I I have to say a very big thank you to Dr. Wayne Furman who who built uh, this uh, podcast into the uh, launching of his uh, retirement. But what a <laughs> fantastic way to uh, culminate the achievements of your career with such a, a, a impactful uh, study and impactful uh, contribution to the field. And so, congratulations. Um, Wayne on, on that tremendous success and 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 thank you for for participating in this podcast. And thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsompdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.